0: James chapter 1, verse 13, down to verse number 18. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. <clears throat> but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err my beloved brethren every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness neither shadow of turning of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures now, that's all we'll read that concludes that opening section that I mentioned last week which is the contrast between trials and temptation the difference between the two we dealt with trials on the first section um, from verse 1 down to verse 12 last week and now this section on temptation from verse 13 down to verse 18 now again just to remind you of the background James is writing to Christians with a Jewish um, background and you get that from verse 1 when he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad so these are people with a cultural Jewish background who have been saved and as a result of being saved, their whole life's been transformed. They've been persecuted by the Jewish people and they've been persecuted by the Gentile people. So they're getting it from both sides. And as a result of that trial and that pressure, then James writes to encourage them. He writes to instruct them how to conduct themselves um, during times of trial and to identify what is a trial from God and what is a temptation to sin they're two different things and we should react to them in different ways so we'll just look at this and as we go down the verses from verse 13 down to verse number 18 we'll see that it's a very different thing when he speaks about temptation from when he spoke about trials it's a man called robert orban who said this that most people want to be delivered from temptation but would like it to keep in touch And that seems to be the idea with us. That, by the way, is a quote from the Reader's Digest. I don't often quote from the Reader's Digest. I never even read the Reader's Digest anyway. So you've got this idea that, and that's not necessarily a Christian quote, you've got this idea that people want immediate relief from temptation, but not permanent separation. So they want to keep in touch. So although they may not want to indulge in some sin at that moment... They want to keep the possibility of indulging in it at some other time open. They don't want to completely destroy the connection to it. You get that in the Old Testament with idolatry very much. And it's the difference between destroying the idols and burying the idols. And there were men in the Old Testament, and you think about those who took their idols, and instead of destroying them and getting rid of them once for all, they took them and they buried them in a place that they could go back and dig them up again and worship them again. So sometimes we're like that as Christians with sin, which is that we may choose to defeat the temptation in the moment to sin in a particular way, but perhaps I'm not willing to go beyond that and actually destroy once and for all the possibility of coming back to that sin. So James is speaking about this idea of temptation. Now temptation in the Bible is often spoken about because it's a very real thing for Christians. When you go into the Old Testament, the wisdom books speak about it. The book of Proverbs speaks a lot about temptation. Proverbs chapter 7 in particular. And usually temptation is connected to sexuality, immorality, things like that. But it's not exclusive to that. Temptation really is what comes from within us that causes us to sin and respond to the bait that Satan puts in front of us in the world in which we live. And that is the idea of temptation. When you go to Proverbs chapter 7, there's a narrative there that's a very familiar narrative in our society. You've got this young man in Proverbs 7, and he lacks sense, he lacks wisdom, he lacks discernment, and he ends up getting a lot of bother. What he does is this that you read down it, and he he walks down a street. It's such a real scenario. He walks down a street in Proverbs (coughs) 7, excuse me, and he sees a woman, and he deliberately walks down past the corner that she lives in he knows that she's there and he deliberately walks down that way so so that he can come into contact with her and then as luck so called would have it she just happens to be coming out her door when he's passing and again as luck would have it her husband just so happens to be away on a trip and then in Proverbs 7 the whole thing goes on and verse 21 to verse 23 says this with her many persuasions she entices him with her flattering lips she seduces him but he's open to the seduction he's open to the flattery he's open to the temptation because he's walked down that street and he has put himself in the way of that temptation and it ends in absolute disaster you read down through Proverbs 7 and he's not the first one it says for many of the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death, which is very dramatic language to say that people go into that house and bad things happen. So Proverbs 7 is a chapter you should read because, and don't read it in the authorised version if that's the version you read, read it in a, a modern translation and you will find it's a very vivid story about temptation and the dangers of it. Now when you come to James chapter 1, James is speaking about the same thing. Because nothing changes in that sense. Whether you go back to the Old Testament or the New Testament, nothing changes in relation to us and our susceptibility to sin as Christians. Now, although I said there's a difference between trial and temptation, and there is, the word that's used is the same word. So the word itself in the first section of James chapter 1 and the word in the second section is the same word. The word is morally neutral It doesn't indicate anything by itself But the context in which it's found Gives it its meaning Gives it its context So Sometimes that word is used By God testing us For a beneficial reason And sometimes it's used For us being tempted Not by God But coming from within us And resulting in sin Now God tests we saw that last week. Let me give you some verses that demonstrate this. God tests the righteous and the wicked in the Old Testament, particularly, and he does so to reveal someone's true character. So for example, in Psalm eleven, verse forty six, it says this the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in his heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord tryeth the righteous. But the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hates. And so it goes on. In Exodus 16, verse 4, um, in that section, God tested the children of Israel. It says, Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day. That was the manner that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So God tests, and he tests to reveal true character. When you come to us in the New Testament, you find that that still is the same. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7 speaks about the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So trials, God tests, temptation we're going to see is something very different. So let's look at this then, look at verse number 13, if you would. Let no man say, (coughs) when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now what you've got here is a classic example of blame shifting. So again, you can identify with this, I'm absolutely certain, that this thought comes into your mind in the moment of temptation. So this is not looking back. Or looking forward, it's in the very moment of temptation. So, let no man say. Now, that's a very strong expression. It means just this. It means articulating, saying actually what you mean. So, he says, do not say. But the tense of that expression, it could be translated this way. Stop saying. Stop saying. So, this is something that they were saying. And he says, you've got to stop doing this. This is a pattern of behaviour. It's a command. It's in the present imperative with a negative and it means stop accusing God. Now, that's what we tend to say. Now, we've had a quote from the Reader's Digest. Here's one from Rabbi Burns. Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. So, Rabbi Burns, when he, and he was a dissolute man, a dissolute lifestyle, when he was in the midst, uh, when he was, you know, drinking and going after a woman, he turned to God and he says, you made me like this. Therefore, it's your fault. You made me like this. You made me the man I am. Blame shifting. Now, you don't need to turn to Rabbi Burns to get blame shifting. You get it in the Bible. You get it in the book of Genesis, actually, when the first sin took place. And the classic blame shifting that took place in the Garden of Eden. And read it in Genesis chapter 3. And you remember the scenario that there was a prohibition. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happened? Satan came and Adam is either silent or he's missing. But he doesn't feature. It's Eve. So Satan comes to Eve. And what does Satan do? He tempts her and he calls into question the goodness of god she succumbs to temptation she's deceived she goes and speaks to adam who was not deceived who made a decision and is held culpable for it, responsible for that decision and they took of the fruit and they ate both of them okay their eyes were opened sin came into them, it had its effect upon them they looked at each other differently because before they were unclothed and it did bother them now they've got no clothes on, thoughts are coming into their head that causes them to be very uncomfortable, so they decide to cover the parts of their body that are causing these thoughts, so they do that and then the Lord comes looking for them as he did, walking with them in the cool of the day and they're hiding behind a tree, I mean it's like It's like primary school stuff. They're hiding behind a tree as if they're going to somehow hide from God. And the Lord starts to speak to them. And there is this classic blame shifting from Adam. Adam says it was her. And by the way, I didn't ask for her. You gave her to me. Therefore, it's your fault. So Adam shifts the blame onto Eve and by implication onto God. And men and women have been doing that ever since then. Slippery customers, shifting the blame, not taking responsibility. And that's what James is saying to these Christians. Do not stop blaming God when you're tempted. It's not God's fault, it's your fault. Take responsibility for it. Now it's interesting, again, the language is interesting. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now that word of, in the Greek there are two words that can be translated into the English word of. I'm not going to try and pronounce them to you because I can't. One means something that is done remotely. And the other means something that's done directly. So one is like direct agency and action upon something. The other is remote. So you cause it to be done, but your hands aren't on it. Here the choice is that remote idea. So James is saying, I know you're not saying God actually did this and brought me into these circumstances, but you know what? It's actually his fault. Because, And then you take a step back and you say, you know what? God made me this way. God brought me into these circumstances. God could have stopped that. God hasn't helped me this. God... Created my circumstances, put me into this environment, caused all these things to happen. After all, I hear that he's sovereign and control of all things. Last quote from Rabbi Burns. This is a famous one. Misled by fancies meteor ray, by passions driven, but yet the light that led astray was really light from heaven. So what he's saying is just this: I was totally led astray. But the light that led me astray came from heaven, ultimately. And that's often what we do. And we blame God, if not directly, but remotely. Now, James is saying this, you've got to stop doing that, and I'll tell you why. In the verse he says, for, here's the explanation, for. So let no man, there's the imperative, there is the command, there's the negative. Stop saying that when you are tempted, that God is behind that temptation, Now this is why you have to stop saying this. The word for indicates that. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God's not to blame. So if I respond to something and I sin, that's not God's fault. God didn't do that. Because God, number one, cannot be tempted with evil. The character of God, we learn this in First John chapter 1, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He doesn't have the capacity, he doesn't have the capability to sin. He is absolutely impeccable. He is unimpeachable. He cannot tell lies. He cannot do something that's out of keeping with his intrinsic qualities and character we can, all the time we've got expression, you know, someone behaves out of character so you've got someone, for example in the Bible Moses, the meekest man in all the earth and these Israelites provoked him beyond any reasonable man and he took these tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments and he smashed them in anger and he would have destroyed the whole people of Israel and he was acting out of character it was the most unusual thing for him to do now, we can do that. You get someone who is a very gentle person and circumstances come into their life and they become violent. It's possible. We can act out. God never acts out of character, He is always consistent with who He essentially is. So there's never aber- any aberration in His part. He cannot be tempted because of His holy character. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. His eyes are too pure. One translation puts it this way To approve evil You cannot look in wickedness with favour You just can't do it He doesn't do it He's very different from us Now when you read about God being tempted By people in the Bible It is God being put to the test by people It's not them inducing God to sin It's a different idea And when God tempts in the Bible, it's the idea of testing us, putting us into circumstances that our true character might be seen. Um, A man called Matthew Poole, who wrote a commentary, said this, that God tests by giving hard commands. Genesis 22, verse 1, Abraham, take your son up that mountain. It's a hard command. By afflicting, as in Job's case, by allowing Satan to come into circumstances in our lives by deserting men and leaving them alone. He does all of that. But he does not solicit, suggest, or persuade us to sin. So verse 14, what then does happen when we sin? Now you you have the kind of uh, flow chart, if you like, of what happens when you sin, when I sin. Not some of the time. This is what happens every time. Because he says this in verse 14, every person, every man, not just some of us, this happens to every single one of us. Every man is tempted. Number one, when he's drawn away of his own lust, and number two, when he's enticed. This is what happens when you and I sin. Now, I think this is very helpful as Christians to understand. Why these things happen in our lives. To get our minds into the process and understand the process that we might be able to deal with it. Not just to think, oh, that you know, that's something I do, I've got a weakness, or that's a sin I commit, or that's something I like doing, and just just accommodating it in our lives, but to understand the process. This is what happens, and it's in the Bible. It's it connects so much with my experience, and I'm pretty sure it'll connect with your experience. Every man is tempted. This is everyone without exception. And the idea, there's two ideas. One is from hunting. That's the idea of being drawn away. It's the idea of a trap being set and, you know, the bait being put in the trap and the animal being enticed towards that trap. So there's this bait in the trap. Years and years ago, I was in Shetland and uh, minding my own business, in my bed, asleep, in the middle of the night, and the phone went, mobile phone went, and it was shame, and there was a mouse in the house. I can't it from Shetland, but there was absolute chaos in Nine Park Road, and traps were set. I think Andrew eventually went in and dealt with the situation, but traps were set, and it was a big chaotic thing. And um, anyway, the the point of the matter is just this: you understand what happens. You set a trap for a mouse. You stick something on it to entice the mouse to get to the trap, and then its head comes off or something like that. <laughs> Well, you know, if you go out hunting, I was over in Canada there, and this this young guy said to me, um, "Would you like to go uh, bow bow fishing? Which is you go out in the middle of the night on these big uh, airboats and with the big searchlights? This is in the Mississippi, I think. Go the Mississippi, <laughs> and uh, they've got these huge big bows with the arrows, and they shine the big searchlights onto the river, and the fish come up to the light, and then the spear." you see there's the idea in hunting of enticement you need to entice something that is this idea here the the word entice is the fishing term and it means it means baiting the hook so the problem is just this and this is what happens this is what satan does now don't think that satan's everywhere satan is in one place at one time he's not omnipresent like god Satan has established a world system. And we live in that world system. And that whole world system that we live in, that the Bible calls the world, is designed by Satan to be bait for his hook. So he's not, you know, he's not involved in the minutiae of your life in the sense of every day testing and tempting you and do- he's not. He can't be. He's not omnipresent. There are demons that he has that do his work. There are men and women who operate within this world system and promote his aims and objectives. But when you go out into that world, you don't need to go out now, when you flip your laptop open or put your phone on or whatever, what you're doing is just this. You potentially are about to be faced with the bait and behind the bait is the hook and the bait is always exceedingly attractive it is to an animal, that's the whole point of it if it wasn't attractive it wouldn't be a bait Satan doesn't bait his hook with something that doesn't appeal to us so how does Satan know what appeals to me? well he doesn't know what I think he's not omniscient like God he doesn't have full knowledge like God does So what Satan, with his thousands of years of experience, does is this. He just observes my behaviour. That's what he does. He sees the things that I like and he loads the hook. He baits the hook. And in my life, I have given him sufficient evidence of things that appeal to me. And lo and behold, opportunity after opportunity will come up to participate in those things again. Why? Because the hook is baited. So, this is, it's not, as they say, rocket science, it's here in the verses. This is what happens. It's so real. So, every man is tempted. This is what happens to us all when we are drawn away, not of someone else's strong desires, but the flesh that's in every one of us has very strong desires after sin. And Satan seeks to tempt us by putting things in front of us in our life that will cause us to sin, because that's the hook. And once he has us on that hook, it's a very difficult thing to wriggle off it. Believers have found themselves hooked by the bait and destroyed, literally destroyed. Now then, when you see that bait that does appeal to you whatever it, I mean there's no point in naming things because it's different for us all when you see that bait that appeals to you and it's sin that's when the knowledge of what God has done at the cross should click in that's when the doctrine of the New Testament that we learn should begin to click in <clears throat> That's when the Holy Spirit, who is within us, takes the word of God that we've learned, that we, have, that we know, that we understand. There's one thing knowing it, there's another thing understanding it. So we've understood it, we've learned it. And the truth that we learn, the Spirit of God takes, and in the moment of temptation, strengthens us in his word, in his truth. You see, that's why it's called the sword of the Spirit. Because it's a very vivid thing. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God which the Spirit of God brings to your mind at a particular moment of temptation that's appropriate for that moment. Now you can only do that if you've been reading it and learning it. So that in practice, listen, we will all experience these strong desires to sin. That's not the issue. That will never go away. That will just continue the whole of your life. That in itself is not sin sin is when we respond to that sin is when we act upon those impulses those thoughts that come into your mind it's what you do with them it's how you respond to them and so acting you have a decision when you act you either act upon what you know from god's word or you act upon the strength of what your flesh is is drawn to and when you're educated in God's word, you can see the hook behind the bait. You can see the hook. And you don't want to swallow that bait. So he says here in verse 14, that's what happens when you sin. So it's not a case of wandering about in this sort of kind of glassy-eyed, oh, I don't know what's going on in my life, you know, and all this kind of stuff. God has actually taught us what happens when we sin. So we know And then verse 15 he tells us what happens once you're hooked. So the bait is there. The hook is in the bait. You bite. Verse 15. Then when lust hath conceived, it takes a life of its own. So when you respond to the temptation, the thing begins to take a life of its own. It's so much so, it's described as giving birth. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin so when you indulge in the strong desire responding to the bait which is malignant and destructive then it produces something and what it produces is sin let me give you an illustration of the Bible because let's be honest most, certainly for men not exclusively for men most of the temptation that we face is sexual It can be financial it can be pride and all these sorts of things and so there there are examples in the bible of people who succumb to this sort of thing and the classic is david and bathsheba and david and bathsheba king david and bathsheba their life experience mirrors exactly what james says here so you have king david right And you have Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's best generals. So the nation is in war. Uriah takes the army, goes with the army to the battlefield. His wife is left behind in the palace area. David, for once, doesn't go to the battle. Now, he should have been at the battle, but he wasn't. So, number one, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He shouldn't have been there. He's up in the top of his house, his palace, and he sees something he should never have seen so he sees another man's wife in a way that he should never have seen her so she's bathing he sees her now what happens is just this there's the bait there it is and the hook is just lying within that bait now what does David do? well having seen something that he should never have seen another man's wife in a way that he should never have seen her he's now got a decision And here is where the sin begins. So it's how he acts upon what he has seen. What's he going to do? He could have turned away. He could simply have confessed to the Lord, I should never have seen that. And that would have been that. But you see, he turned towards the sin. And what he did was, he took Bathsheba and he committed adultery with her. So then, the scenario unfolds. She then gets pregnant as a result of that, and now David's got a huge, huge problem. How's he going to explain this? His generals at the battlefield; he's in that. He's he's at home, and he's got his general pregnant. So what he does is he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, and sends Uriah down to his house to spend the night with his wife see how cunning the scheme is that'll explain the child but Uriah out of faithfulness to his troops and David says this how can I go down to my house when my soldiers are on the battlefield I can't do that and so he he refuses to go down to his house and he just sleeps where David is so what's David going to do? David now is in such a mess. He's so hooked. He's in the process. His strong desire has given birth to sin. Right? And then sin, according to James, when it's finished, brings death. That's exactly what happened. So David says, I'm going to have to murder this man. So he writes a letter to the other generals soldiers at the battlefield and says gives it to Uriah the man whose death warrant it was and says take that and so Uriah doesn't even read it he takes it to the battlefield and the instruction was when the battle is at its strongest pull back from Uriah and leave him alone to fight it by himself and that's what happened and he was slaughtered so david you see the process, David sees he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, he sees something he shouldn't have seen, he walks towards it, he takes it he's bitten he's now hooked sin desire produces sin adultery that then produces death the death of Uriah and for one year because the baby's born David never said a word to anyone not a single word until one day there was a prophet called Nathan who knocked on his door and asked to see him. Told him a story about a man who had sheep and about how this man basically was was taken advantage of and he was a poor man and, and all the rest of it. And you can read the story. And David is more moved by the story of a man with sheep than he was actually about Uriah and his wife. And Nathan said... David said, I'm going to get that man, the man, and I'm going to punish that man. And Nathan said, David, you're that man. And David crumbled. And he he went through a period of repentance and confession and ultimately restoration to the Lord. But it's a vivid example of what James is saying here. So get it. The bait on the hook, you either walk to it and bite, or you walk away from it. If you bite, you start a process. That process conceives sin, never good things. The outcome of that is death, ultimately, because that's the outcome of sin. Death means separation. So in verse 15, you have that, it bringeth forth death. Now, look at verse 16. Verse 16 is a statement by James to make sure that we do not get this wrong. It's so important for us. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. You see, when believers are going through trials, as these believers were, they become very susceptible to temptation. I mean, if you think about some of the trials, you imagine that you've been abused physically, you've been harassed, hounded, you're a refugee. You imagine that you've got no property of your own. You think of the temptation to steal you think of the temptation to be violent. You think the temptation to tell lies. You think of the temptation to deny the Lord for an easy life. You see, when you're in the moment of trial, temptation comes in. Satan baits his hook because you're weakened as a result of the trial. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. God is not behind these things. And he gives us two reasons here. Why that is so. Number one in verse 17. God only and always gives good things. So every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now you see, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. You remember that Satan said to Eve, hath God said, doubting God's goodness. Basically saying, do you know what? God's got something that's excellent and he doesn't want you to have it so he's, you know, if you take of that fruit you'll just be like God I mean how wrong could he have been it was a disaster but it sowed a seed into Eve's mind and actually if you look at Genesis 3 the language that Eve uses demonstrates that that seed took root and she diminishes God's goodness in the language that she uses and so Satan has done what James says is not true. God only ever gives good things. God doesn't withhold what is good. God seeks our blessing. And he's consistent. He's the father of lights. Now that is the idea, I think, referring to the lights in the heavens, in space, the stars and the stellar lights. And the idea is just is that they are constant. I mean, the sun from our perspective, rises, at least we think it rises, we cannot ever see it, but we think it rises every morning and the moon and so on, and the stars are all the same. That's why folk navigate by them historically, because they are a constant for us. And God is likened to the Father of lights. He is the Father of lights. That is, like the sun, God does not vary in his goodness to us. He's constant, just like the constancy of the stellar heavens. He's always good. And even although clouds come in and we can't see the light sometimes, it doesn't diminish the fact that they're there. And sometimes our circumstances are such that we can't see the goodness of God. That doesn't mean that God's not good. It just means we can't appreciate it. Our circumstances are dulling our appreciation of the goodness of God. And I've said it so often, you know, in Fiji and these places that I've been, they, they start some of their meetings God is good all the time all the time God is good and that kind of mantra and it's a very true statement the second thing is in verse 18 it says this of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures so God is good all the time that's him and what about his what about his desires for us well Paul says this in Philippians 1 verse 6 I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is doing good things in our lives of his own will sometimes we think of salvation a bit differently we kind of think this that of my own will of my own will I got saved. Actually James says it was of God's will God moved in my life. God spoke to me through his word. God convicted me of my sin. God sent his son to provide salvation. God did all of these things for us. And if he's done all of these things for us, he's not then going to destroy the fruit of the cross work of Christ. He has made us a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, that takes you back into the Old Testament, this idea of first fruits. And when the harvest came in, in the nation of Israel, what they would do is this. They would take the first of the harvest and the best of the harvest, and they would offer it to God in appreciation. As a token of the harvest that was yet to come, and in worship for God, for his faithfulness creatively, in providing the harvest, they gave the first and the best to God. And James says, listen, think of that that's what you are to God out of his whole creation you are like the first fruits God saved you to be the very best of his creation so he's not going to destroy your sin he's not going to diminish you he wants to lift you up he doesn't want to bring you down and when you think about that and you think about temptation that's exactly what temptation does destroys us so two things tonight Trials and temptation. Trials, God brings them into our life to refine us, to test our faith, to bring us into maturity, to bring us into Christ likeness. Temptation doesn't come from outside of us, it comes from inside us, it comes from within. And it is our inner response. To debate the enticements that Satan provides. So one is circumstances that God allows in our life to produce things that are better than us. The other comes from inside us, that base, strong desire that we can feed our flesh. And it responds to Satan's enticements. And the key is just this, to understand the difference between the two. Temptations, we, should, we shouldn't respond to them. We should turn away from David should have turned away. Trials, they have to be endured, the Bible says. For it is when we endure, verse 12, blessed is the man that endures the trial. When he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord had promised to them. I love him. Now, The practical application of this is very straightforward. It's very simple and it's a singular point. It's just this. Tomorrow, think about this tomorrow. In your day, as you're going through your day normally, have this in your head. It's what I'm looking at, Satan's bait or is what I'm doing, or is what I uh, I have a desire to do, does that fit this? And should I turn away from it rather than turn towards it? It's just a basic decision we make. And the more we turn away from temptation, the more we turn towards God and Christ and a walk with God, the more we respond to temptation... It's just a downward path. And it's a downward path to ultimate uselessness and misery in life. So there is the decision. But it's not a decision that's made in huge, big issues. Can I tell you this? It's a decision that's made in the very small things of life. The very small things. Things that are right and wrong. Very small. Do I tell that lie or do I not? Do I click on that link Or do I not? Do I say those things or do I not? These are the issues that your life's character actually flow out from. The small but vital issues of right and wrong in our daily life. Trust that God will bless that. And help us, because these things are not easy to put into practice. Help us.